We'll be in Acts 23, if you want to turn there. Starting in verse 12. It's very interesting in life how some things that some people find enjoyable, other people find very tedious and almost a curse. Uh, an area that I find particularly difficult and troubling is that of bargaining and haggling. Some people absolutely love to haggle. They just, they love to tell glory, the stories of, you know, how they got this great deal years ago. And I'm like still feeling guilty about how I didn't get a great deal, even though I tried. Um, I, I get uncomfortable watching people haggle. I, I just want to walk away. I was like, oh, no, no. Anyone like that? Or you just born haggler. You just have to haggle. You see a pair of shoes and, hey, come on. You're not going to sell for that, right? Yeah, for me, I feel like it's a lose-lose. I, I feel like uh, I, I feel bad if I discover I've, I don't have a great deal and I've been lied to or deceived in some way. And I also feel a bit guilty, like you're in Cambodia in the shops and you're, you're talking about dollars that, you know, they need probably more than I do, and then you feel a little guilty that I got a great deal. Um, so that's just that's just me. But what I've discovered is that the issue isn't money for me. I don't mind spending money for something that I want or that I think is a good value. I don't like trying to have to read people to try to figure out and discern whether they're being honest with me or not. I don't like kind of having to judge them as well as the situation. It makes me feel uncomfortable to say, well, you get a bit cynical about it because you have been perhaps lied to before. You have been taken advantage of. You have paid extra when you didn't have to. And so you come into it with that bias. Um, and uh, Proverbs 20:14, It's good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasts. So you see the motive there. He, he talks down the item because he wants to get a better price for it. And, and the buyer as well as the seller have motives, right? We have those unseen motives and, and we need to be discerning when we're buying something. We choose a brand. You know, can I afford this? Is it something that I need? Um, if that extended warranty is worth it. But we also make judgments about other things all the time when it doesn't involve money at all. We, we can judge people, judge their motives. Um, and God knows the hearts. He knows what's going on in somebody that you can't read and that you don't know. 2 Samuel 22, 26, and 27, it says, With the merciful, speaking of God, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. So the way that we judge others, that's the way that we will be judged. That's how God will look upon us and treat us. Um, and it's good when we're walking uprightly and we have a clear conscience before God, knowing that he is our judge, that he knows us. Um, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And when you're being accused, when you're misunderstood, when you're being judged, it's easy to become angry or fearful. But it's so good to know that God is our judge and what he says is much more important. What he knows about you is much more important than other people's opinions about you. And Paul, he was in this boat. He was claimed a her he was called a heretic. He was accused. He defiled the temple and he was beaten up. He was imprisoned. He hadn't done anything wrong. Yet Jesus stood by him. 
Jesus said, as you have spoken for me in Jerusalem, you will speak for me in Rome. And what an encouragement that God had, God knew Paul. God had heard all these accusations, but he knew the truth and that he would stand by him and fulfill his word. And so what a comfort that is for us, uh, thinking about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your power. Lord, we need you to reveal yourself to us. We do come in broken. We come to you empty. We, we come to you not understanding and confused about things and, and needing your guidance and clarity. And we need you to show us things about us that we don't even know about us, that you know very well. We pray that you would uh, minister your wisdom to our hearts and give us eyes to see, Lord. Help us to praise you and to worship you and to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 23, verse 12 is where we pick up our passage. Paul has been imprisoned. He's in the barracks awaiting um, really just what's going to happen next because he has just gone before the Sanhedrin. They were, were pulling him apart, and the guy said, well, the commander brought him back to the barracks and said, for your own safety, you have to stay here. And so he's really in limbo. He doesn't know what's going on, but uh, the Lord stood by him. Acts 23, 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. After that incident where there was this big, you know, fight within the council, Paul was almost torn apart and was removed for his safety. There were more than 40 Jews who vowed they would not eat or drink until they killed Paul. That's some serious commitment, right? Very committed. Jesus brought encouragement by night and these Jewish folks, they brought, they doubled down on their hatred the next day. And they said, we're going to kill him. I wonder which of those revelations impacted Paul more. What might impact you more? Jesus stands by you and he makes you a promise. And then you hear 40 people are going to kill you. And they're, they're not going to even eat breakfast until they kill you. They're not going to drink anything until they, they want to die as much, they're willing to die to see you die. Pretty, pretty intense. I'm reminded of Isaiah 54, 16, where God said, Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me says the Lord. God promised his people that no weapon fashioned against them would prosper, that even a tongue of judgment spoken against them, he says, you'll condemn that. So you don't have to take that to heart. This is your, this is your heritage. Your righteousness is from me. So your safety and your security and your future doesn't depend on the opinions of other people or what their judgments are about you or even their schemes to thwart, or discourage you. It depends on me, not them. 
So this group that wanted to kill Paul, they, they gathered together and they went to the chief priests and they said, hey, this is our plan. Um, we can't kill Paul as it is because he's in the barracks. That would be difficult because of all the Romans there. But how about you talk to the commander, you have Paul brought out just to make an inquiry, but on the way, that's when we'll take our opportunity and we'll kill him then. The guard will be light, we'll be able to do it. The Sanhedrin didn't have a problem with this, it seems. They did not try to dissuade them in any way. So great was their hatred of Paul and Jesus whom he preached. It shows that those in the habit of lying, deceit, and hatred will agree to murder if it furthers their plans. Like they're all interconnected. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. From this, we learn Paul had a sister who lived in Jerusalem, it seems. But uh, we know that his sister's son, his nephew, heard of this ambush. We don't know how he heard about it, if he overheard them talking about it, if he was well-connected in those social circles there. But anyway, he hears of this plot, and he goes and tells Paul. And Paul says, hey, you better pass this along through that centurion to the commander. And the centurion, he identified Paul as Paul the prisoner. It's a little title that you see for the first time here, a phrase that Paul latches onto. We see him actually using this title to speak of himself a few times. But not just a prisoner of the Romans, not just a prisoner in the barracks, but a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He uses that term three times. Because even in chains, as he submitted to God's will, he was free. He was free to rejoice. He was free to serve God. In Ephesians 3, 1, he writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. Twice in Philemon, he also mentioned that. Paul knew what it was like to be in that prison of hatred towards followers of Jesus. He had been in that prison. Remember, he was the one who was standing by agreeing that it was right that Stephen should die for his professed faith in Christ. And now he, his freedom was taken away to go and come as he pleased, but he wasn't robbed of the freedom that Jesus gives. He wasn't only useful during his mission trips, but we see that Paul was really useful even in prison. Four of his letters that we have in the New Testament were written while he was in prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He was able to endure seasons of darkness, unknowns, a lot of waiting. Isn't waiting hard when you don't know? You're like, what's going on? What's my future? That's Those are things that he was facing. While he's in chains, he's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, beaten. He was able to endure that because Jesus stood by him. He was free to rejoice in God even though circumstances were hard. It's a good thing we don't have to actually feel the weight of chains on our wrists and our ankles to experience the joy that we see Paul experiencing. To experience the presence of God. We don't have to have a physical prison uh, or have these extreme circumstances 
to have the presence of the Lord upon us. It requires faith wherever we go. We need to realize that Jesus is more real and powerful than our feelings, than literal chains, than prisons or sicknesses, things that seem to limit us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he suggested that the resurrected, risen Savior Jesus, he was more weighty. So the word glory, it means weighty. That Jesus was more weighty than the world around him, that he could pass through a solid wall, and the wall or the door was like smoke in comparison. Because Jesus was the most real thing there. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, my mind is a bit blown. Praise the Lord for smart people in the world. Because <laughs> you think Jesus being a bit ethereal and, and like a spirit passing through. No, he was more real than that door. He was more real than those chains. He, he was able to be there because all these things that seemed so heavy and confining, he just passed right through them as nothing. Because they're what's nothing, not just some spirit. Jesus is real. His power is true. And and he doesn't do that for us. He doesn't barge through the, the door of our hearts. It says he stands at the door and knocks. He's not going to force his way into your life, but he's going to stand there and he's going to knock and he's going to call out for you to willingly, voluntarily open up to him to receive him and to receive the truth that he has said. And to, to believe that truth is more real than other people's opinions or what we see in the world or, or how we feel. He comes to break our bonds. Acts 23, 19. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. The commander really seems to be a kind man. It says he takes him by the hand. He brings him into this private place and he says, what do you have to say? And he lays this plot to kill Paul bare. And he warns them, don't fall for the trick. They have a plan. They plan to kill Paul on the way. They're going to act like they want to hear more about his case, but really they have assassins that are not going to eat or drink until they've killed him. And I'm sure the commander was very grateful for this intel because to lose a Roman prisoner, one that was under their care, for them to lose one or to be killed under their watch, that would mean really severe repercussions. They were to guard their, their prisoners with their life. So he's like, all right, good. Um, it talks about oaths there. They bound themselves by an oath. People still make oaths or promises today. You say, oh, I swear I'll do this. Or I swear that. Um, God takes them very seriously. Sometimes we don't take them seriously. In Matthew 5, Jesus said that our yes should be yes and our no, no. So that we don't have to swear for people to believe that we really mean something because we've been faithful to what we've said before. Verse 22, So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, 
and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. The commander listened to Paul's nephew. He believed the report that was brought to him. With the violence that he had personally witnessed, it was not a, it was very plausible that there was a lot of hatred that they would, uh, that would result in them wanting to kill him. And he said, don't tell anyone that you've told me this. It was evident there was no place in Jerusalem safe for Paul. And so he called two centurions to muster 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to escort him out of town and to bring additional mounts for Paul when those mounts were tired or perhaps injured, that they would be able to safely convey him to Caesarea, some 120 Ks away. Quite a show of force. Nearly half of all the men under his command in Jerusalem going out, um, highly trained, fit, well-armed, armored soldiers who were ready to defend Paul with their life. The Jews might have been, might as well have been facing tanks and artillery. There was that big of a, a gap between what they could muster. I mean, they were using like a dagger. Um, and, and stealth was their only weapon. But here they had quite force that uh, they weren't going to overcome. So what an answer from the Lord that Paul, he sees it beginning to unfold that God said, I'm going to, I'm going to testify of Jesus in Rome, and God will see it done. No matter if everyone in Jerusalem wants to kill me, God is going to protect me. And his plan was to depart Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That would be 9 p.m., so he could be brought safely to Felix. And doing so, the Romans would have the element of surprise. They'd probably be out of the city well beyond their reach before the assassins even knew that they were gone. Um, Verse 25, he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man... I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. He identifies himself as Claudius Lysias, and he explained why he was sent to Caesarea. Apparently, any time a prisoner was transferred to a superior officer, you would have to state the case in writing uh, the details of it. And he paints himself quite the hero, doesn't he? He's like, me and my troops, we rescued Paul when we found out he was a Roman. Now, as we follow this around, it's true that he did find out that he was a Roman, but only after he was binding him to scourge him. So he he omits all that detail, right? He doesn't say, yeah, we, we chained him, and then we were about to scourge him, and when we were tying him up, he mentioned something about it. That looks bad. He doesn't want to say that. Self-intimidating details, no need to, to say that, has nothing to do with this case. Uh, and he mentioned how he brought Paul before the council, how they wanted to kill him, but he hadn't done anything worthy. So he was sending him to Caesarea, and then after he left, he would have informed the Sanhedrin that if you want to press charges against him, you have to go to Caesarea to do it. 
this hot potato prisoner. Paul had been accused, but was not yet guilty. And so they needed to ascertain where he stood. And it was important, it was obvious he was not going to get a trial, a fair one, in Jerusalem. When it comes to decisions or judgments, it's important to realize that we do bring a degree of bias with us. We have our own ideas, right? Perhaps Claudius and Felix had extensive dealings with the Jews, their laws, and their culture. And if the experiences of Felix had been very negative about the Sanhedrin, that would definitely color the way he read this letter. He's like, oh, here we go again, you know, trying to kill people that don't agree. Right? He could have had that view. Or he could have been very sympathetic to Claudius Lysias because they were trained up together. They had some sort of family connection. So he's going to automatically tend to believe whatever's written in the report. Or he could see Claudius Lysias as a bit of a braggart and someone who's trying to pump himself up all the time. And so when he reads this, he's off. I don't know if that's true or not. Right? So there's all these decisions that he's making in interpreting this. And I'm focusing on these points for a couple of reasons. The one is one side of the story is not the whole story. You might hear an account, but until he heard from Paul and his accusers, he couldn't even begin to make a real decision concerning the case. The second one that I want to make is the first account you hear is not necessarily the most credible. Sometimes the first time we hear a story, we'll be more apt to go with that version because we heard it first. And so we'll repeat it without really looking into it. Who knows the motive of the storyteller? Who knows what their motive is? We don't. We don't really know. Even the most objective people have motives and judgments that we don't even realize that's impacting our decision of what we're going to believe. Jesus, Paul, others, they were accused as evildoers, but did nothing worthy of death or chains. Um, they had been accused. Revelation 12, 9 through 11, it exposes Satan as an accuser of the brethren. That's his tactic, is to accuse. He doesn't have any basis for it under grace, but under the law, we've all sinned, haven't we? There's a lot that we could be rightly accused of. And uh, as I was hearkening back to my childhood and my life, there's plenty of things that I've done and said that were wrong that I wasn't even punished for, right? There, there's this handful of times, or maybe a lot, I don't know your childhood, but perhaps you were punished for something unjustly, right? You actually told the truth, and it was you who got in trouble. And you're like, I remember that. I was right. And, and I really had the right motive. But I got in trouble for it. And you're like, huh, that's that's wrong. But you would agree. There's plenty of things that you've done or said that you didn't get in trouble for and you really should have. <laughs> if if justice was going to be served, if we're honest, you're like, all right, I can take that one. I agree. I have not been perfect, right? Let's gladly receive rebuke and correction from the Lord and fellow believers, but as believers, we don't have to lay accusations and condemnation from the enemy to heart. We don't have to own that. The victory has been won through Jesus. It's through him that we get righteousness. It's not by 
the works of the law. I like, I'll just read this passage in Revelation because it's awesome. During the midst of the future tribulation, it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives to the death. And it says, Satan accused them day and night before God. This is a future event where Satan is accusing us before God and saying, look at that guy. Look at what he's done. Look at what he said. Isn't he a hypocrite? Isn't he saying one thing and doing another? And the accuser will one day be thrown out of heaven and the case dismissed with prejudice. And what that means is they are not able to, it's that, that lawsuit is being barred from ever being resubmitted. If you submit a court, a case to the court, they can dismiss it. But if it's dismissed with prejudice, they can't come back. That person is not allowed to make that again. It's like, hey, he's dismissed. He's thrown out. The case is thrown out. And so it's like glory to God that salvation, strength, and righteousness comes from the blood of the Lamb and that the testimony of our words and deeds carry more weight than what he says. We don't need to lose heart when we're accused by men, by people. Let's be mindful that we are not an accuser of the brethren. Right? We can easily slip into that one where we begin to accuse. Paul had been accused by the Jewish council. He hadn't done anything worthy of this treatment. If you could please turn to Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Paul would have admitted, and he did many times, that there was this battle between the flesh and the spirit. He was accused by people, and maybe even he accused himself at times, but he realized that there was no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 7, verse 24, reading through 8, verse 2 for context, says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the Spirit of, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's like those laws of, of aerodynamics, they can overcome the law of gravity in a plane, let's say, right? Gravity says that it pulls those two forces are drawing those objects together. But when you apply the law of thermodynamics or aerodynamics, you're able to overcome that and to fly in this plane that's heavy. It can fly and carry people around the world. And you go like, oh, that's pretty cool. And we see these things and we, we don't get the implications of them always. 
And so he says, yes, there is the law of sin and death, but I am now under, there's no condemnation for me because I serve the law of God, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm serving. So there's no condemnation for me. My sins have been washed away. We always have a capacity to sin in these bodies, don't we? We're free from the law of sin and death. But we have the capacity to sin because we're in this body of flesh. We can give place to feeling helpless and condemned when we're free. If you you would agree that we have the capacity to sin, and you'd say, well, do you sometimes feel hopeless as a Christian? I have. But should I? No. Because of what Jesus has done for me. There's no condemnation. I don't have to live in perpetual regret because of the position Jesus has given me by his grace through the gospel. Paul didn't need to be burdened by his accusers or the chains that bound him because Jesus had set him free. And this isn't just like a fantasy or pretty words, but really a reality that we can enjoy. It's our birthright as children of God to be free from condemnation. When we're walking in the Spirit, we don't have to be beating ourselves up anymore, uh, bound by sin or the fear of man or by what other people think. Our freedom is in Jesus. We're never at the mercy of our enemies or our accusers, but we can press on in an abundant life through faith in God and what he's done, what Jesus has accomplished. Because when we read the book of the Revelation and we see these future events that will take place, they're already done in, in, in one sense. God has already said, this is how things are going to be. And we can celebrate them as accomplished, whether we see them with our eyes or not. And uh, I'm looking forward to the time when Jesus Christ sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives and establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem. I mean, that's amazing. But even now, this, the kingdom of God is, is established within the hearts of those who trust him. And his power to work in and through your life is just as strong and powerful as that day and also when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's dynamic power. It's amazing. Acts 23, verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. The 470 strong group of Roman soldiers, they accompanied Paul by night to Antipatris. It's about 56 Ks north of Jerusalem. And in that region, there's a lot of places that would be ideal for an ambush. That was kind of the danger zone. Once they reached Antipatris, they could safely reduce that military escort to the horsemen. And uh, Caesarea is a beautiful port city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Judea at that time. Encyclopedia Britannica says, Excavations undertaken since 1950 have uncovered a Roman temple, amphitheater, hippodrome, which seated 20,000, the aqueduct and other ruins of Roman and later times. And I, I have been to Caesarea, 
And I guess if you're going to be imprisoned anywhere for two years, it's not a bad place to be. Pretty beautiful. He's presented before Felix with the letter from Claudius Lysias. And he just asked him, where are you from? And, oh, okay, from Cilicia. And then he said, you're going to be kept in Herod's Praetorium, which is where that was the governor's residence, but also where all the soldiers stayed. So there was an attachment of soldiers there permanently in that capital city. And Felix was wise not to rush into judgment. He did not, he was not sympathetic towards Paul, but he said, he didn't even ask him about his case. He said, I'll listen to you when your accusers are here too. I want everyone to be present before we even have this conversation. Right? He hasn't put on his judge hat yet. Um, but that's going to come. And he says, I'll, I'll hear your case when we're ready, when everyone's together. It's a good practice for us to reserve judgment even when we have two versions of the story. I, I imagine that if five people witnessed something, you'd have five different stories. They would focus on different aspects of what happened, how they were feeling. That's going to impact what they're seeing, right? It's very natural for us to take sides. It would have been natural for Felix to side with Claudius Lysias's account of the story. But it wasn't until Paul and the accusers were there that he would make a judgment on the matter. We can be easily influenced, right? We, we don't want to admit that. I don't. I, I want to say, I am perfectly objective, completely objective in every way. No bias whatsoever. Impossible. It's just impossible. We Feelings, emotions, bias, our past, our motives for what we want, a sense of duty. A sense of duty can impact the way that we approach something. And we can have even more sinister motives. We can have favoritism or partiality, bigotry, racism, sexism. All these things play in, a blight upon all those influenced by them. Knowing this, we need to remain, choose to remain on God's side. Not to pick sides with people, but to be on God's side. And that's the way of truth and righteousness. Jesus was asked to take a side. There was a man that said, hey, Jesus, make my brother split the inheritance with me. Do you think he had an ulterior motive for asking that? Well, me, if I heard him, I'm like, well, what's the case? Let's listen to it and figure it out. Jesus didn't have to do that because he knows, he knew the guy. It says in Luke 12, 14, this is how Jesus responded. He said, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? This is very ironic because Jesus is the judge of all the earth. Jesus is the almighty judge. And he says, who made me judge over you? The very next verse shows us why he would not judge in this case. Judge uh, Luke 12, 15, it says, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Jesus would not be made a servant to that man's greed and covetousness. He knew something about that man. He knew the motives of why he was asking that question. And so he refused to be an arbiter over this case. We have to stand with God in righteousness, even if other people question our motives. Because people could have said, well, Jesus, you're a wise man. You're a man who knows the law. 
That's what Moses did, right? People came before him with difficult questions, and he made known to them God's statutes and his laws. Jesus didn't do that in this case. Let's please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And we'll read verses 3 through 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Last week I mentioned part of this passage, but I feel led to continue on to the next verse. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthian church. He loved these people. He had been very influential in the founding of the church. And he wanted to instruct them and also correct some sinful things that were happening in the church. So it's a letter with some rebuke, some encouragement, and some teaching. And there were lots of people in the church who had a very low view of Paul. They, they questioned his motives. They were wondering, man, is he just doing this for a job? He wants money out of us. He just wants control and power. All these other teachers came after Paul, and they're like, man, these guys are the real deal. Paul, his presence and the way of speaking is contemptible, horrible. I mean, he writes powerful letters, but man, you see him in person, the way he talks, he can't even carry a conversation. I mean, they, they they had some really negative things to say about Paul. Paul's being accused by the council. He's also being accused by the church, by people in the church that he loves. And his motives are are clean towards them. And this shows that we can face conflict within a church or even from outside the church. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. There were a lot of ministers who were getting a lot of praise, and they were put up on a pedestal but their motives would prove insincere, and they would fall. People in the church, they had aligned themselves with Paul, or some preferred Apollos, they had loyalties, and some would only accept the teaching of Jesus. These uh, super spiritual folk, they weren't interested in hearing a message from Paul or Apollos. They're like, hey, Jesus, that's all I need. He's the only one. This is who Paul's writing to, this group of people. And so Paul says, judge nothing before the time. What is the time? The time when Jesus comes and reveals the truth. The things that are unseen, that we can't see, that we don't really know, that we could only be suspicious of. (laughs) This time of judgment, Jesus will bring to light the truth. It will all become clear. And Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I know God judges me, and he's going to walk in the way to fully please him. God will bring to light every loving thought, every wicked thought, everything we've done with a selfish motive, everything we've done for the glory of God. That will become clear on that day. And there will be many people who have a stellar, clean image, like a Pharisee on earth, but their hearts will be proved wicked on that day. And there will be other people who are despised and accused and spoken poorly of, whom when God, before his judgment seat, 
they are clean and deemed righteous by his grace. And so he exhorted the people, uh, resist, withhold judgment concerning me about what my motives are and what I'm telling you. God's my judge. There was a lot that was going on, but Jesus would make it plain. And Paul was comfortable with that. And that's a good question. Like, am I comfortable with that idea? God making everything plain? Every, all the motives coming out? There's people that we thought we knew that, that went on to do and say terrible things. Uh, there's people that I have initially had a hard time with or viewed negatively that, that shocked me with their kindness and love. I, I find, looking back through my life, I'm a pretty bad judge of people. I don't know if you can agree with me. My best friends growing up, the first days that I knew them, I didn't want to even talk to them. They were, they were, I just thought they were mean or unpleasant. But it turned out that they were actually, oh, you know what? This guy's really cool. A really cool guy. I wonder if people in the church in Jerusalem after he's arrested went, uh, oh man, I heard Paul was, uh, arrested. Man, he must have done something wrong to deserve that. I remember this one time that he, they just started talking about Paul and how he, man, he probably deserved to be in that boat. You know, God needed to teach him some lessons or whatever they were thinking. I don't even know. But God forbid that the gossip would be flowing when Paul's doing the will of God and he's in trouble for it. Not only with the Romans and the Jews, but with the church. One day we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's just turn to that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And that's why it's so important as believers we realize the way we live on earth today matters. We will be judged as Christians, not will we have go to heaven or hell, but will we receive the full reward that God has prepared for us? Some will receive that reward and some will suffer loss. So this is, this is his motive, one of his motives for living righteously now. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. Knowing our God is consuming fire, he is mighty. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. Our opinions and our judgments of people on that day, are they going to matter at all? Well, I think he's a jerk. Oh, I think he's a great man. Is that going to matter? Does that like go into, well, God's like, I'll take that under consideration. <laughs> no, it won't matter. Other people's opinions of you aren't going to matter when you're standing before Jesus Christ and he's judging you according to what you've done and the attitudes of your heart. That his judgment is what matters. Nobody else's judgment matters then and it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter. Even when someone is, let's say, they have a judgment concerning you and they say something, that can still be instructive. Even when they're doing the wrong thing, God can use that to teach you something. So we can learn. I learned in physics, which I was never very good at, 
You cannot come to the correct answer with the incorrect work. I had a knack of getting the right numerical answer, but getting to it the wrong way. And I would have the correct answer, but get two out of 10. And somebody else would get the wrong answer, but get nine out of 10 because they had the right work. They just had a, a little error in there. And I was just like, what? I got the right answer. It's like, well, you can have the right judgment, but are you coming to it the righteous way? It must be righteous judgment. Our judgments of others, they're all wrong if our motives are wrong, even if we're right, right? But I'm right. Just talking my own mental. This is, this is what I, the Lord is bro- breaking me out of. May the Lord purify my heart so that I am well-pleasing to him. Paul wrote in verse 11, don't miss this, but we are well-known to God. What a blessed truth. God just hasn't heard about you. Oh, yes, I heard about what you said. I heard about what you did. He didn't just hear about it. He knows you. And you are much more important to him than something that's happened, something that was said. You are valuable to him. You are precious in his sight because he's, paid, he's, he's loved you enough to purchase you with the blood of his own son. And so because he knows me and I know him, I seek to please him, not people. I want to please my father in heaven. And I can be praising him even in trials, having a clear conscience, that I'm not judging others before the time. And when I catch myself doing it, which is very natural for the flesh, that I would repent and that I would commit that to the Lord and I would walk pleasing to him. When you're accused to not lay that to heart, to not allow bitterness or resentment to build, but to be casting that on the Lord because he cares for you, he knows you, he knows what you suffer, and he is able to secure you. He is able to help you and to provide that comfort that you cannot receive even if everyone sings your praises. Because again, what is the praise of man before the judgment seat of a holy God? He'll receive our praise. Praise him that he will. He will receive our praise. And that we can thank him. We can enter into the joy of the Lord. You know, there's that one scene where he says, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, so the righteous from the unrighteous, those who believe and those who... Uh, have refused to receive Christ. And he says to those on the right hand, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And I believe wholeheartedly that that's not just something way out in the distant future, but if we do the will of God and we serve him now faithfully, we can enter into the joy of the Lord today. Even when you've got chains on your wrists and you're in the barracks, the pris- Paul the prisoner, you can rejoice. Let's praise him. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great and awesome God. And what you have determined and judged is true. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from uh, giving place to feelings of condemnation or, Lord, that we would not accuse one another, that we would not be an accuser of the brethren, and also that we would be as Paul was, that he sought, he made it his aim to be well-pleasing to you because you knew him. 
Lord, we are delighted that you know us, that you have called us by name, that Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Lord, I pray that his reality, your reality, would flood into our hearts and our lives, that you would impact the things that we say and the things that we do, and you're the reason why we do them, that you would give us that sense of purpose and determination to obey you and to praise you and rejoice in you, that we would experience your freedom, Lord, from the bondage of sin and also the opinions of others, those things that weigh on our minds, Lord. Thank you that you set those free indeed through your spirit. Lord, may we experience this freedom, not just be something we long for or talk about, but something that we have, and may your joy be full in us. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for, uh, I guess, allowing even Paul to go through such tough circumstances and to face such difficulty that Jesus would be ridiculed and betrayed and and uh, scourged and crucified, betrayed by his own so we can get much solace in the situations we face, Lord, which are nothing to that severity. Lord, we just give you our lives and we praise you in Jesus' name.